Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. Uh, we're continuing our study on the history of the authorized version of the Bible. And we're picking up today on the events and uh, documents of the 3rd century uh, that had an effect on the writing of the authorized version. Uh, so let's just turn to our uh, core passage here in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll read that again. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 through 21 tells us we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And basically what we're trying to prove or show with uh, these men that we, we talk about and the documents we talk about proves that there is a connection between uh, what God gave the original authors such as Moses and, and Joshua and David. It is connected with what he told uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, all of these guys that had uh, a part in giving us what we hold in our hands today, which is the Word of God. It's it's different authors, but there is only one author, one writer, if you will, that God is the ultimate author, and he gave uh, these men what to write and how to write it. And it was him, God himself, who protected and preserved those words from the very beginning of Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. And it was his doing uh, that this Bible is accurate and it's true. And we're just trying to show that uh, through through these events and, and documents that we're talking about. All right, so again, we're picking up in the 3rd century. Um, in the year 200, uh, there is a translation of the Bible called the Peshitta. P-E-S-H-I-T-T-A. Uh, this is a Syriac version that contained the entire Bible, uh, the Old and the New, and it also included the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha, uh, I think we mentioned it in the last podcast, it was a couple of writings of different uh, men and some women uh, that was deemed not really necessarily part of the core elements of what we needed in the Bible, so a lot of it has been uh, refused as being part of the Bible, part of the Word of God. Uh, but it's still some interesting reading. It doesn't mean you should just totally avoid it. Uh, it is some good reading. Uh, but it is not considered part of the Holy Bible that we have. Uh, the name Peshitta means simple version. And of, of course, what it means here that, that this Bible has been translated from the original Hebrew, and of course there was different writings, Aramaic and and, and a lot of the New Testament is in Aramaic and Hebrew. And you either had to have a, uh, a very good education background where you were taught these lessons, these, these languages, or uh, you were at the mercy of someone else telling you what the Bible said. And some people took that in effect and gained control over different people. And others fought to have the word translated uh, through people they trusted. Uh, into their language so that they could read the Bible for themselves. And so that's where the Peshitta uh, come about. It was a Syriac version of the entire Bible. It was all put into one language so everyone uh, who had the Syriac language at that time and the understanding of that language could read the Bible for themselves. Okay, um, in the year 208 AD, uh, I'll introduce you to a fellow by the name of Cyprian. Cyprian, C-Y-P-R-I-N. And we're going to leave his name simply at that because his full name was uh, Thasius uh, Cassilius Cyprianus. And, of course, that was three names put together. Thasius was his original uh, name. Uh, Cassilius was the name of the presbyter who was responsible for his conversion. So he took that name to honor him. And then uh, Cyprianus was his Latin version of his name, Cyprian. Uh, we know he was born in North Africa and possibly in Carthage because a lot of what he did was connected to the city of Carthage in North Africa. Uh, he was born to a wealthy pagan family. Uh, the occupation that he had was that of an orator. He was a very uh, good speaker. <laughs> I probably didn't even use proper English for that. He was a well speaker or whatever. <laughs> but he, he spoke well. 
he was a pleader in the courts and a teacher of rhetoric. So he understood the language well, could use it uh, for an occupation, and was pretty successful at it for that. Uh, he was uh, such a great speaker that he is considered the preeminent Latin writer of Christianity, at least until the time of Jerome and Augustine. Jerome and Augustine, if you don't know your Bible history very much, they are very prominent Bible historians. So uh, Cyprian, uh, it's quite an honor to have his name placed with the names of Jerome and Augustine. Uh, moving up to the date of 246 AD, this was the date uh, we know that he was baptized. We don't know the date of his conversion, but it is recorded that he was baptized in 246 A.D. And uh, Cyprian describes his own conversion in his writing Ad Donatum uh, in 3 through 4. I think that's books 3 through 4, chapters 3 through 4. I'm not sure what that means, but uh, quoting what he says, quote, When I was still lying in darkness and gloomy night, I used to regard it as extremely difficult and demanding to do what God's mercy was suggesting to me. I myself was held in bonds by the innumerable errors of my previous life from which I did not believe I could possibly be delivered. So I was disposed to acquiesce in my clinging vices and to indulge my sins. But after that, by the help of the water of new birth, the stain of my former life was washed away and a light from above, serene and pure, was infused into my reconciled heart. A second birth restored me to a new man. Then, in a wondrous manner, every doubt began to fade. I clearly understood that what had first lived within me, enslaved by the vices of the flesh, was earthly, and that what, instead, the Holy Spirit had wrought within me was divine and heavenly. I will point out that he does say there in the middle, uh, that it was the help of the water of new birth. Now, this is a belief of the uh, Catholic Church especially. I think there are some others that believe this, that it is the water baptism that saves you, and that's why they baptize their infants. Uh, the Bible clearly proves that's not true, because if that was true, how could Christ tell the thief on the cross that today thou, wilt be in, thou shalt be with me in paradise if he'd never been baptized? So it is the act of faith, personal faith, that saves you uh, it's not the water baptism. That is an outward testimony of what has taken place on the inside, okay? But uh, anyway, upon his conversion, uh, he gave away a portion of his wealth to the people of Carthage. Now, I'm sure, you know, that's not something we could all do, but he was a wealthy man. Uh, he was moved to do this, and he found favor with the people for doing that. He wasn't buying their allegiance, I guess you would say, but it, it did play a prominent role. You can't deny that. Uh, the year 248 to 249, uh, he was elected Bishop of Carthage. Now, Bishop is a term, um, basically, let's just say as pastor. Uh, they, they, had, they had bishops, local bishops, and then they had regional bishops, and then they had bishops at, uh, let's per se, the headquarters, but, but it's basically a pastor, like a senior pastor, and then like a... Uh, I don't know any other better better way to say it, but he was the the pastor here in Carthage. Uh, now his election to pat uh, to bishop to pastor uh, caused a highly contested division between the poor people of Carthage, who remembered what he did in giving some of his money away, and the presbytery or the group of pastors, uh, who on one hand thought he had been moved up through the ranks, as it were, too fast. And those who felt he was wasting his wealth, learning diplomacy and literary talents in this capacity. So there were some who said, well, he's moving too fast. And some said, well, it's, it's a waste of him to be a pastor knowing what he knows. He could do so much more uh, as an orator. Uh, so there was quite a division going on here. In the year 249 AD, <clears throat> the emperor of Rome is uh, by the name of Decius. Uh, he issues an order demanding all citizens except for Jews uh, alone, to make sacrifices to the idols in all Roman territory. Uh, Cyprian decides to flee Carthage, and he was severely criticized and condemned for this action. Um, Cyprian defended his actions as being necessary to lead the faithful from a distance rather than leave them with no shepherd at all. And it kind of reminds you of the story in the Bible. We don't know all the details, but we are given a hint of kind of what happened. Uh, with a fellow by the name of John Mark. 
in the book of Acts. And it's funny, it's John, Mark, and Acts, but uh, John Mark, who, who we think is, is the writer of the book of Mark, but as it is, Acts chapter 5 gives us a beginning of this story. Acts chapter 5, uh, Paul and Barnabas have been making some of these missionary trips, and they're getting ready to set out again. And Acts chapter 5, verses 36 through 40, tells us of an incident that happens between these two guys. And, and listen, we're talking about two Christians. A lot of people seem to think, you know, well, just because you're Christian, you know, you're perfect. You don't ever sin. You never have disagreements. You don't, yeah. hey, we're human just like everybody else. We're forgiven. That's the only difference. So let, let, listen to how this story unfolds here. Uh, verse 36, Acts chapter 5, verse 36. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. Verse 37, And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And listen, the contention, verse 39, And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. So you can see, uh, obviously, I, I believe, if I may be right here, that Barnabas is actually related to Mark. And so he kind of has a soft spot, not saying there's anything wrong with that. And also Paul uh, has a hard spot, I guess you'd say. And really, there's not anything wrong with that. Now, we don't know the details behind the circumstances or whatever happened mark left uh at a point when they really needed him and and so paul took that to heart and barnabas was willing to kind of give john mark a second chance but later on in the bible uh paul in writing second timothy chapter 4 and verse 11 he brings this fellow's name up again second timothy 4 verse 11 says only luke is with me Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Now, does that say Paul was admitting he was wrong before? I, I haven't really studied into it, but uh, just on the surface, I think Paul has a change of heart, change of mind. So, you know, maybe Paul was learning the lesson here. I, you know, maybe maybe John Mark got things straightened out, whatever it is. Uh, in the end, he got a second chance. And so it can be debated for both ways for both men. John Mark deserved a second chance for whatever situations took place to uh, bring it about. Or Paul said he was profitable in the end. And this fellow Cyprian, you know, you may think, well, he was a coward for leaving. Uh, but in that argument, you know, hey, what good would he have done if he'd have stood there and two months later he's dead? The people had no shepherd. So that could be a division, you know, a debate point. But he did. He left. Now, in 251 A.D., during uh, this resulting persecution, it was particularly severe in Carthage. And I'm sure that just magnified the whole scene of things there. Many Christians capitulated or surrendered, and they were called lapsi, L-A-P-S-I. And L-A-P-S-I being interpreted is the, the fallen. Uh, they fail. Uh, and most of these had obtained false, falsely signed statements that were called libelli, L-I-B-E-L-L-I. -L -L uh, they had falsely signed statements declaring that they had offered sacrifices to avoid persecution. Still others actually offered the sacrifices, either due to torture, threats of losing their property, or just simply offering up the sacrifices to avoid the persecution altogether for whatever reason. Uh, but they were all part of these lapsi. Uh, and Cyr Cyprian declared that the lapsi would have to face public penance before being readmitted into the Christian church uh, there in North uh, Egypt. And uh, <laughs> the, the public penance is something that, uh, just to cover it a little bit, um, I know our church, uh, when someone commits a sin, if it's a private sin, you admit it privately. Uh, if you offend one person, you admit it to that one person, ask for forgiveness. But if it is a public sin, it, it would be necessary to admit it publicly. Um, 
enough, enough said about that. So Cyprian kind of held that argument. But the other church leaders, however, readmitted some of these people with little or no public penance at all. Uh, and some of these were the leaders that had actually stayed in uh, Carthage. And what was going on, you could almost read it between the lines that some of these preachers or, or bishops or pastors, as it were, had probably fell in line with this rule by the emperor, as it were. How else would they have been able to stay, I think, right? But there's one action here in particular that played a significant role during this period to change things up. Uh, some of the lapsi came into possession of a second uh, labelli, uh, which supposedly contained the signature of a martyr who it was believed had enough spiritual influence that they could readmit the bearer of the labelli on their own without the need of the bishop or the forgiveness of the people, whatever. A great deal of lapsi were re readmitted in this manner, totally ignoring the demands of Cyprian and most of the Carthaginian clergy who were with Cyprian in the fact that they were going to have to ask forgiveness before being admitted back into the body. Now, this action was a clear threat to institutional authority. The apostate and rebellious nature of the system gained recognition and quickly spread throughout the region and was not contained to Carthage alone, but actually went out into the other regions. And for this, uh, from this action arose a division within the northern Egyptian church. Uh, for the one side was this group called the Laxists, L-A-X-I-S-T-S, uh, who were led by a fellow by the name of Novatus, who was a bishop in Carthage. And they were in favor of welcoming back everyone with little or no penance. Novatus ends up electing a man named uh, Felicissimus to become the new bishop of Carthage in Cyprian's absence. Okay? And that obviously caused problems because now there's two bishops in Carthage. Okay? You see where I'm going with that. Now, the Laxists were on one side. On the other side are the group called the Rigorists. And they were led by a person by the name of Novatian, N-O-V-A-T-I-A-N. And he was a bishop in the actual city of Rome. And he was in favor of not allowing anyone back without public penance, first and foremost, okay? Now, a little over a year after these events, Cyprian does return. I guess the, the persecutions were letting up a little bit. They weren't completely gone. They are dissolved, but it was well enough to allow him to come back. Once he returns, he writes a 36-point uh, thesis statement entitled Delapsis, uh, which is, means on the fallen, in which he encouraged those who held to their faith, he criticized those who didn't, and then warned everyone of the impending danger they faced by allowing the continuing system brought about by the followers of Novatus, this laxist system. He then uh, held a council among the leadership of the North African church to consider the issue of the lapsi, and the followers of this Felicimus, Felicissimus, F-E-L, I'm going to spell it out so you can look it up yourself, F-E-L-I-C-I-S-S-I-M-U-S, Felicissimus, okay? Uh, so again, Cyprian held this council uh, to determine what to do about these lapsi, the followers of Felicissimus, and to regulate the support by which the treasury of the church played a role in all of this. Uh Cyprian actually takes a position between the two movements, between the laxists and the rigorists, uh, if you will, a, a, a moderate stand. The majority of the council sides with him and in the end condemns Felicissimus, essentially creating a third movement, the moderates. So you've got the laxists, the moderates, and the rigorists. And just by the definition of the terms, you can tell, uh, you know, there's the lazy ones, there's the medium ones, and then there's the rigorous ones, okay? Uh, now, this fellow, Felicissimus, he's not silent in all this. He actually denounces the results as a threat to his position. Now, while that seems natural on the service, you know, hey, I'm you know, the pastor here, what, you know, you're threatening my position as a pastor. This is not actually what he's talking about, uh, because it should be known that Felicissimus, while being a bishop here in Carthage, was also the administrator, the administrator of the treasury of the church. So they were pretty much wrapping, smacking his hands on the money of the church. You can't touch the money that's coming to your church anymore. So that, that's kind of a big argument. 
Uh, but but after this, uh, the followers of Felicissimus, in a move that can only be interpreted as inflammatory, moves to elect a man named Fortunatus to take Felicissimus's place and then sends Felicissimus himself to Rome to represent them there. As the beginner of the movement, Novatius had moved on to other interests. Now, in reaction to that, the rigorists elect a man named Maximus as their bishop in Carthage. So now there are two extreme movements. Cyprian's caught in the middle, and you've got a, a bishop uh, for all three movements in, in Carthage and a bishop for all three movements in Rome. So you can kind of see all this stuff is getting crazy. Okay? But then something happens. What happens is called the crisis of the third century. It's also called the plague of Cyprian. And it's got his name attached to it, which is terrible enough. But, uh, but anyway, now considering uh, while this recording is being made in uh, the end of April of 2020, of course, we are all uh, caught up in this coronavirus with all of the information um, and, and, and listen, the more people talk about it, there's it seems to be valid information on both ends of this thing. There's a lot that we don't know about it, a lot we do know about it. There's arguments for both sides of the thing. Uh, let, let's just take a minute and, and define some terms from a biblical point of view and, and just see what we can get out of it, okay? Now, of course, the first term is a plague. That's a word that's used quite often in the Old Testament. Uh, the Hebrew word is negah, negah N-E-G-A. Niga. And in the Strong's Concordance, it's number 5061, if you want to look that up. It means a blow, a spot, a sore, a wound. And it comes from the root word naga. So you've got naga, N-E-G-A, and the root word is naga, N-A-G-A. And basically what you're getting at is an action word that comes from the noun word, uh, as English language is set up, okay? So niga comes from naga. And Naga is the number 5060, so they're, you know, one right behind the other there. The word Naga in, in Strong's Dictionary uh, Concordance says uh, to touch, to lay the hand upon, to strike violently, to beat. So the plague uh, is, is a, a spot or a wound that is inflicted by someone uh, beating <laughs> or someone puts... Your hand, their hands on you and gives you this. So this plague is something that's inflicted on someone. Okay. Uh, another word to know the definition of is the word murrain. M-U-R-R-A-I-N. This is very similar to a plague. And it's unique in the Bible in that it's used only one time. And that is in uh, Exodus chapter 9 and verse 3. And what's going on is uh, this is in the middle of the plagues that God's striking Egypt with the ten plagues that God strikes Egypt with, to get them to let his people, the Israelites, go. Uh, Exodus chapter 9, verse 3, describes the fifth plague of Egypt, the diseased livestock. Now, in the ten plagues that God used against Egypt, uh, it's interesting to note, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Schofield, uh, who has notes that he puts in, in, a, in the King James Bible, which a lot of uh, independent Baptists and Methodists, I believe, very different. It's a very popular Bible, <clears throat> but not saying he's totally right because there are some things I disagree with him on. But in this spot here uh, is a note that I found very interesting. He says uh, that of the fifth and the sixth plague, the fifth being the diseased livestock and the sixth plague being the bulls that the people were struck with, uh, two plagues that affected the bodies of animals and the bodies of humans, it is never mentioned in the Bible, never mentioned in the Bible, that these two diseases were ever withdrawn. All of Egypt's cattle died while Israel's were not affected at all in Exodus 9, verses 6 through 7. And then when you talk about the bulls, it's never mentioned as being removed by God versus uh, dissipating over time. Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. That's going to be a point I bring up a little bit later. Those diseases, uh, in that God never removed them, they are, they stay around. That, that's the point, okay? Uh, so we've mentioned plague, we've mentioned moraine. Uh, now let's mention this word pestilence. This seems to be a word uh, most usually 
associated with some of the diseases we have uh, in our day and age. The word pestilence uh, in the Hebrew word is uh, deber, D-E-B-E-R. And in Strong's Concordance, that's number 1698, deber. Uh, the definition in the sense of destroying, a destruction, a pestilence, a plague, a moraine. So it ties most of those words in together. Now, the root word for deber is, of course, debar. So you've got D-E-B-E-R, and then the root word is D-A-B-A-R. Now, this is unique here. Debar, in Strong's Concordance, is the number 1696. And the definition for the word debar is a, it's a word called out to people or to put people in a formation. It's a word called out to put people in a formation. Now, this, was a, this would have been a word used to gather Israel together during the Exodus to hear the word of God or to prepare to move out or to get instructions on what to do. It's also used, uh, it's a word used to describe uh, how uh, Queen Bee controls a hive. And it is a word that can be used to describe in uh, the military. Uh, it would be reveille or taps. When you were gathered in the formation for the raising of the colors or when you're gathered in formation for the lowering of the colors. That's the difference between reveille and taps. Reveille is when the flag goes up. Taps is when the flag goes down. Okay. Now, when reviewing these three words, it becomes obvious that these diseases are intentionally used and placed upon man by God for some purpose and not generated by some so-called act of nature. Now, it is part of nature. Uh, many of these diseases we have today are bacterial or viral, uh, which is of nature itself. You know, whether uh, man has a hand in doctoring these things up or sprucing them up or, or creating a weapon out of them, um, they pretty much have their foundation in nature. But what we're saying by this is that, that God has control of it okay now that that word moraine that we talk about it was noted that these two diseases of the original 10 plagues were never mentioned as being withdrawn now history records for us uh, that about every 100 years or so a major pestilence affects the world now considering where we're at today the 2000s we have the coronavirus it's continually spreading uh it is slowing down i think at this point but it is still spreading in the 1900s there was the spanish flu the Spanish flu killed anywhere from 17 to 100 million people. In the 1800s, there was cholera uh, that resurged. It wasn't something that hit one time. It resurged six times between 1816 and 1899, and it killed over 14 million people. In the 1700s, there were smallpox. It started on Iceland in 1707 and killed 36% of the entire population there. And it resurged over 10 times between 1707 and 1788. And the estimates of those killed were in the millions. There is no final numbers on that. Uh, the 1600s was yellow fever. It mostly affected the 13 colonies in South America. And it resurged several times. And in some areas, this disease, this disease killed 90% of the population. In some areas, this disease killed 90% of the population. That's deadly. Uh, going back even further, the 1500s, there was the Black Death, what was known as the Bubonic Plague, and this was the second time it struck, or the second period of time in the hundreds that it struck. It kept resurging, but it was the second major time. This was a worldwide effect, <clears throat> and it killed anywhere from 50 to 80% of the affected population. So anywhere the Black Death was, there was 50 to 80% of the people that died from it. The 1400s was typhoid fever. This killed over 10,000 in England and Europe alone. Uh, the 1300s, that was the first time Black Death came about. It affected Europe, Asia, and North Africa. It killed anywhere from 75 to 200 million people. That's up to 60% of the entire population of Europe. 60%. That's the majority. Okay? Uh we could go on and on and on, but let's get, let's go back. I, and I'm making a point here by doing this. Going, let's go back to the 500s, 500 AD, <laughs> the Justinian plague. It affected Europe and West Africa. It killed 50% of the population, the entire population. Back in the 100s, there was the Antonine plague. That was smallpox. It affected the Roman Empire. It killed 5 to 10 million people. In the 400s BC, 
There was influenza, typhus, or typhoid fever. They don't really know what it was in effect, but it, it had the effects of being similar to them. It affected Greece, Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, and the Roman Empire. Over 100,000 were killed. In the 1200s BC, 1200s BC, there was influenza. This affected the Babylonian Empire. Now, there was an unknown number killed, but records indicate it devastated the empire. Now, the point here is to show that major epidemics are going to happen. And if you could probably trace it back, if history could record it, uh, I would think, I'm not saying that it's a fact, but it sure puts the thought out there that they're connected to these uh, plagues in the Bible. I'm not saying that that's where they come from by any means, but I'm saying the fact that it's pointed out that those diseases never went away. They, they could resurge how, however, but it seems that, that God being in control, God being in control, he could use those diseases for a reason. But, but again, the point here is to show that major epidemics are going to happen, and they usually happen about every hundred years or so. And God allows these things to happen for a reason. And you think, well, why could God let something like that happen? Listen, we can't put all this on God. The reason God does it is because of something that we did in the first place. It's our fault. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. The whole reason people die, the whole reason there's murder, the whole reason there's there's rape, there's incest, there's all these diseases is because we committed the sin. God told us not to commit the sin, to follow him, to listen to his word. We committed the sin. So therefore, we brought sin into the world, not God. Okay? So let's, let's put the blame where it goes. Now, <clears throat> In saying that God allows these things to happen and that they have a reason. Now, let's not say that a person who gets infected uh, has committed some sin or being judged by God. That's a lesson we learn when we read the book of Job. That's exactly what happened. Job was a righteous man. And I would be so far to say the only man more righteous than Job would have been Jesus Christ himself. Job did everything right. And yet God took everything he had and, and struck him with these bulls. Again, the, the plagues like that in, in, in Egypt. Uh, and all his friends, they were said, well, Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have done something wrong. Job had done nothing wrong. And so just because we think today, oh, somebody's got coronavirus. And, and seeing that, that God is using this, I mean, let's just say it. God's using this thing to get our attention. And just because somebody has coronavirus doesn't mean they've done something wrong at all. It's, it's, it's the result of, of, of sin that we put in the world in the first place. So everybody suffers, whether they've done wrong or not, okay? But <clears throat> the very definition of pestilence shows that God has to intentionally give us all a time out, per se, and force us to slow down and reflect on him about every third or fourth generation. Now, there, there's this thing, and when I teach Sunday school, and I mentioned it several times, the, the nation of Israel went through this behavior pattern uh, it's a five-point pattern, if you will, where uh, they they were in deliverance, and then they had rest and peace, and then they committed sin, and then they faced suffering, and then they had to cry out to God, and then it began all over again. God would deliver them, they would have rest and peace, then they would commit the sin, and then they would go to suffering, and then they would have to cry out to God. It was just this vicious pattern all through the Old Testament. It's just over and over again. And we tend to be very critical of the Israelites and how they uh, how they behaved around God. But hey, let's let's put it in our ballpark. Let's put it in our neighborhood. We too are guilty of the same pattern. And I'm thinking back um, to some of the generational terms that we use. You know, we've got Generation Y, Generation X, uh, the Baby Boomers. We've got the Greatest Generation. But but let's put that cycle of pattern of behavior in place to how how current generations are. Uh, there are those who do the fighting. They gain the stronghold. They defend the land, and they thank God for deliverance. And immediately, I either think back to the Revolutionary War, I think back to World War I, I think back to World War II, those that we considered the greatest generation. Uh, the second generation, those who do the building, they form the foundations, they establish the laws, they pray to God for guidance. The third generation, those who do the reinforcement, the rebuilding, the saving for the future, they tend to be too busy to pray to God. They neglect God because they're all about the work. Okay? And then the fourth generation, those who abandon all thoughts of God as they have never witnessed God in anything their parents did. And they can't understand why bad things happen because they don't have the foundation in their heart 
to understand what God says about it. And then, of course, there's the fifth generation. There's those who suffer the consequences. They begin a deep soul search for answers. They're looking. They want to know why. And they're willing to look for the answers. And they begin crying out to God for deliverance. Okay, so there's the five patterns that I see. I'm no psychologist or anything, but I, th I think it's kind of ev evident in the way the history cycle repeats itself. Okay, now the lesson to learn here is, first of all, God is in control. God is in control. And you can ask yourself, well, so if God's in control, why is he doing this? Uh, what's he trying to show us? And I think there's a passage that we can turn to in the Bible. And I think it clearly lays out, it clearly defines God's point, God's purpose, and, and the results of, of why these things happen. And if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and there's a lot of verses here, but I think I'm going to take the time, and I'm going to read them. Uh, they're that important, especially since we're going through this stuff today. And I know a lot of people are asking, you know, why would God let coronavirus kill all these people off? Well, th this might be very well the reason why. God's having to kind of give us a time out. Look, look at what's going on. Um, businesses are shut down. People are spending time at home. They're, they're spending time with their children. I see a lot of uh, people who are actually doing homeschooling that are, for the first time in their life, I think they, they actually found a connection with their children. And, and it's, it's, it's making us stop. It's making us think. Uh, sports is shut down. So most of us men don't have something to draw our attention away uh, other than looking in the Bible. So, okay, let's go to this, all right? Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read the whole chapter. Verse 1. Now, these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. There's your three generations right there. You don't just learn them. You teach them, and you pass them on. Verse 3, Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may be increased mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Is one Lord. There ain't nothing else you can add to that. One Lord. Verse 5, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. That's the sum of our energy right there. Uh, it's our physical being, our mental being, and our spiritual being. We're to love God with all three of those things. And then he goes on in verse 6, and he gives a kind of instruction thing on how our parents are, are to uh, teach our children, train our children. Verse 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. What's that saying? God should be continually on our heart. That doesn't mean we have to walk around with our heads bowed and prayed all the time, but the thought of God should be in our heart in everything we do. Verse 8, Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. <clears throat> Verse 9, And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house, and on thy gates, and it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land, which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities, which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things, which thou fillest not, and wells digged, which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not, when thou shalt, shalt have eaten and be full. Here's the warning in verse 12. Then beware lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And, and just look at that. Verse 10 and 11, he's telling them, hey, everything you've got, I gave you. Now, of course, in today we think, well, I built my house or I went out and I got my job. Who gave you the ability to learn the facts that you needed to have the education to get the job you've got today? You, you could have been born uh, with no concept of memory. You could have been born with... The, uh, no ability to do the things you do. God created us in a specific pattern and in a specific way to do a specific job. And we have to take advantage of that. 
But at the same time, we shouldn't take pride in it because we should know where it comes from. And that's the warning he says, hey, you're going to get all of these blessings, but don't get so wrapped up in them that you forget who gave them to you. Verse 13, thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. Ye shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God. Now we all like to hear that God's a God of love, but how about that jealous part? We always don't hear so much about that. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. He's a jealous God. We forget that. We, t we, we always like the love part. And we always like the forgiveness part. Uh, there's an active part of God that gets angry. Let's not forget that when Jesus saw those people selling those things in the temple, he turned them tables over and took a whip after them. We don't recall so many times that part of, or that side of Jesus. He did. He got angry. But it was in kept in check, if you will. Verse 16. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you did uh, tempted him in Masa. Verse 17, ye shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he have commanded thee. Verse 18, and thou shalt do that, which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest go in and possess the good land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers. Verse 19, to cast out all thine enemies from before thee as the Lord hath spoken. And when thy son asked thee in time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Then thou shalt say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence, that he might bring us in, to give us the land which he sware unto our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good ways, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And it shall be to our and it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God, as he hath commanded us. So uh, that's kind of a long reading, but listen, back from verse six, he's telling us how to teach our children and how we should teach ourselves. Uh, we should have God constantly on our mind, and we should always remember who gave us what we have. We should always be thankful for the Lord who did give it to us, and we should never forget where those things come from. And then when you look over in verses 17, 18, uh, verse 17, it tells us, if you want to mark that in your Bible, I, I religiously mark my Bible. I always like to make notes and things. Ye shall diligently keep, and verse 18, thou and thou shalt do that. Thou shalt diligently keep tells us how we train ourselves. We have to constantly train ourselves. That's just like somebody in the military. Once they learn how to shoot a rifle, uh, it, it's never done. Uh, okay, well, you're a marksman. Okay, you're good to go. And he doesn't have to do that anymore. You have to continually do that. I think it's every six months you have to requalify uh, with your weapon. So you have to continually train. Once you learn it, you're not done. You have to diligently keep. Diligently means actively and aggressively seeking. And then 18, and thou shalt do. That's how we show others. So then when you get down in verse 20 and it says the children ask us, hey, why are we doing these things? What's the purpose behind them? Number one, you've been diligent in training yourself so that you're able to train them and teach them because you know the answer. And then the rest of that in verse 18, thou shalt do that. that by showing them, by telling them and training them and showing them, they'll be able to do those things as well and continue that on to the third generation. So, so we see uh, this pattern of behavior, getting back to our notes, the point here was to show, you know, that major epidemics are going to happen. God allows these things to happen, but the reason he allows them to happen is our fault, okay? But the lesson to learn here is that God is in control. Ask yourself why God is doing this and what is he trying to show us? We just read why, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, in the second part of that, how do we avoid or stem off the spirit of fear that surrounds us? Um, I know it was pretty soon after coronavirus was coming out that that seemed to take over every news network, every newspaper, uh, every conversation everybody had, all coronavirus, coronavirus, coronavirus. And, and listen, it just comes to the point where, okay, let's, let's take the facts that we can trust, trust in them, but, but let's not put our faith in those facts. Let's trust in God. 
Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Listen, God's not going to let something scare us that, that he's in control of. We shouldn't fear this thing. What happens if you die? I mean, let's face it. We are all going to die. What happens if you die? We're going to be at home with our Heavenly Father. What's wrong with that? I know we don't want to leave our families behind, and I don't say that we should trust in that, and let's just go out and do what we normally do. I, I think there is some uh, a prudence in following the laws of the land. You know, be you know, keep yourself separate. And it, hey, listen, even if it doesn't affect the coronavirus, it's probably good practice and manners anyway. I think a lot of this thing with a lot of people stopped washing their hands, so now they're starting to wash their hands again. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with doing that anyway, disease or not. Okay. All right, now, so let's get back to Cyprian here and talk about a little bit about what's going on. We kind of jumped a rabbit trail and got off. Of, um, so there's this division going on there in, in the um, uh, Carth Carthaginian church. So you got three, the laxists, the moderates, and the rigorists. And so Cyprian's caught in the middle. And so this epidemic happens. <coughs> Excuse me. And that, now this pandemic that happened affected the entire Roman Empire from around 249 to 262 A.D. At the height of the plague, it is said that 5,000 5, people were dying every day. 5,000 people were dying every day. That, that's quite a bit. Now, the plague was devastating enough to the point to create food shortages because there were not enough people to gather the crops. So, in effect, it actually created a famine even though the crops were growing. There was just nobody to bring it in. Also, it affected the Roman army because they were so depleted that it could be argued that the fall of the empire could be attributed to this plague. It depleted their ranks. And for uh, there's a, a lot of recordings or writings after that that said that after this plague left, that, that the Roman empire itself just was like in a state of confusion or misguidance or whatever it was. So I, if it wasn't the fault of it, it sure had a role in it. Okay. Uh, the name of it, the plague of Cyprian, and it was only because he witnessed and described it. In a sermon, he drew an analogy from this plague, <clears throat> from his essay, De Mortalitate, <laughs> De Mortalitate uh, which means on the plague, in which he says, this trial, I'm quoting, this trial, that now the bowels relaxed into a constant flux, discharged the bodily strength, that a fire originated in the marrow, ferments into wounds of the fosses, Fossus is the arched opening at the back of the mouth leading to the uh, pharynx. I had to look that up. Okay, continuing quote. Uh, that the intestines are shaken with a continual vomiting. That the eyes are on fire with the injected blood. That in some cases the feet or some parts of the limbs are taken off by the contagion of diseased putrefaction. That from the weakness arising by the maiming and loss of the body, either the gait is enfeebled or the hearing is obstructed, or the sight darkened, is profitable as a proof of faith. What a grandeur of spirit it is to struggle with all the powers of an unshaken mind against so many onsets of devastation and death. What sublimity to stand erect amid the desolation of the human race, and not to lie prostrate with those who have no hope in God, but rather to rejoice and to embrace the benefit of the occasion, that in thus bravely showing forth our faith, and by suffering endured, going forward to Christ by the narrow way that Christ trod, we may receive the reward of his life and faith according to his own judgment. Now, Cyprian's biographer, Pontius, uh, described the plague in his book, um, Vita Cipriana, which means the life of Cyprian, uh, and it was translated by Ernest Wallace in 1885, <clears throat> and it says this, quote, Afterwards, there broke out a dreadful plague, an excessive destruction of a hateful disease invaded every house in succession of the trembling populace, carrying off day by day with abrupt attack numberless people, every one from his own house. All were shuddering, fleeing, shunning the contagion, impiously exposing their own friends, as if with the exclusion of the person who was sure to die of the plague, one could exclude death itself also. There lay about the meanwhile over the whole city no longer bodies, but the carcasses of many, and by the contemplation of a lot, which in their turn would be theirs, demanded the pity of the passers-by for themselves. No one regarded anything besides his cruel gains. No one trembled at the remembrance of a similar event. No one did to another what he himself wished to experience. 
So the devastating effect of this plague solidified <clears throat> Cyprian's firm but moderate stance and all but erased the opposition in their following. So it was due to this plague that the, the Laxist group uh, lost its leadership, it lost a lot of its members, and even the, the rigorists uh, also lost most of their leadership and, and the members. So it kind of, uh, God just kind of took control of it and worked it out for Cyprian, okay? <laughs> however, however way you want to put it, that's what happened. <clears throat> now, 256 A.D., towards the end of the year, a new persecution broke out under a new emperor, Valerian. Now, Cyprian decided this time to stay with his people in Carthage. And in 257, he was brought before the Roman proconsul, which is a governor, military commander type leader of the local area. Uh, the guy's name is Aspasius Paternus, uh, where he refused to sacrifice to pagan deities and boldly professed Christ. He was banished to a place called uh, Curubis, that's C-U-R-U-B-I-S, or it could be Suribus, uh, a coastal town in, in Tunisia for his actions. After a year, he was recalled to Carthage and placed under a form of house arrest. And then on September the 13th, 258 AD, he was arrested again and imprisoned by the next proconsul, Galerius Maximus. Uh, the following day, on the 14th of September, he was examined for the last time. Uh, examined basically means put before a trial, okay? He was put before a trial for the last time and sentenced to die by the sword. Cyprian's response was, quote, thanks be to God. Uh, Wikipedia goes on to say his execution was carried out at once in an open place near the city. A vast multitude followed Cyprian on his last journey. He removed his garments without assistance, knelt down and prayed, after he blindfolded himself, he was beheaded by the sword. So he was in total control. All right, now what's the importance here? Uh, he wrote from 248 to 258 A.D., and his works include many letters uh, and around 10 or so uh, treaties on church-related subjects such as exhortation, uh, martyrdom, the unity of the church. Uh, he also quotes many New Testament books by name. And by this time, there are not only several copies of the New Testament around, but a good working knowledge of the entire work. Okay, uh, we're going to stop right here. We'll continue next time with the fellow by the name of Constantine the Great, who was a Roman emperor, and pick up from there. Okay, thank you for listening.